Hello and welcome to Running on Joy with Francesca Goodwin, the podcast that celebrates putting one foot in front of the other in whatever form that takes. This is a podcast that explores how we can live in a more connected, creative and compassionate manner for the benefit of our communities, our planet and our own mental and physical health. I'm your host, Francesca Goodwin, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what joy means to them. Running on Joy is ad-free, but if you enjoy the show, please do take a moment to leave a review and give feedback wherever you listen to your podcasts. You might also consider supporting the work of Running on Joy guest Dan Lawson through rubbish shoes and rerun clothing to end the cycle of wastage in the sports clothing and footwear industries. Follow at Rubbish Shoes and at Rerun.Clothing on Instagram for further information. Hello everyone, my guest today is a civil barrister, environmental activist and storyteller who is bringing new significance to what it means to be a lawyer in a time of environmental crisis. After practicing as a barrister in London for what I believe is around a decade, they founded Lawyers for Nature as a response to the urgent need to create greater respect, protection and representation for the natural world, as well as those who seek to defend it within our legal system. Outside of this, they regularly write and speak on legal rights to the natural world, as well as representing nature, including trees and rivers, in the courts as best they can. They have a natural affinity for water, are a swimmer, live on a boat, and have founded a community project to restore a river in East London. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast and to now invite them to also introduce themselves in the manner of their choosing and say who they are. <laughs> Hi, I'm Paul Powson. I think you've given a very uh, solid introduction to what I do there, so I'm not sure there's much I can add. Wicked. Okay, well, we'll dive straight I've, into I've, I've been people I'm on the boat right now, and I've just been for a snowy walk along the river, so I'm in, I'm in the mood to talk about nature. I think that's a, ni- a nice thing to add to the introduction as well. Thank you. <laughs> so let's rewind before the boat. Let's just go back to you growing up. What was that like, and what was your relationship with nature then? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I kind of moved away from nature a bit in my kind of late teens and early 20s. Um, and so I kind of forgot how how important I think nature actually was. And I think I always had an affinity to it. And I, I'm starting to sort of recall times when I would just go off into nature by myself. My dad was really into football and my brothers were as well. And I wasn't mm-hmm. ever. And so when they would play football, um, I would always kind of wander off by myself often into nature and you know I kind of remember I was probably like only like eight or nine years old and I would kind of wander for miles out along a river near where my dad plays football and one time I kind of trespassed onto a scout camp and this woman found me and like asked me where my parents were and I said where my dad was and she was like that's miles away so she drove me back and I was like why are you doing this <laughs> I'm perfectly happy in my uh, in my long wanderings by myself um, and yeah and, and sort of other memories around there was an oak tree uh, in uh, the garden of my grandma's house which is kind of unusual actually cause it wasn't in the countryside it was like mm. in a kind of town sl- suburb of London and um, there was a huge oak tree that was probably a 
around four or five hundred years old and when I was a teenager it got chopped down in order to redevelop her house and I remember at the time being really outraged by it and wanting to get a tree preservation order on it but being told that if I did that it would basically kind of ruin ruin the development of my grandma's house and my family would be very upset so I didn't and I always regret not doing that and I still kind of sort of mourn for that oak tree um so yeah I think I've always had an affinity for it for nature in its own way and it's kind of there's been a journey of coming back to that I guess it sounds like it was quite divisive when you were younger as well. Like the, the first of all, the trespassing on the scout camp, and then splitting the family with the defence of the of the oak tree. Uh, you know, it was, I, I wouldn't say divisive. I just kind of did my did my <laughs> thing, really. I guess, um, regardless of yeah how others perceived that. Even though I guess that was kind of weird at the time. So, do you think you've always been a wanderer in a in a in a way? Yeah. Yeah, I used to often just go off by myself and like other times where near my dad that there was a there was a hill um covered in trees. I'd just go wandering there by myself and like found a spring and cleaned it out. You know, really odd things for teenagers to be doing when you look back, but actually it was kind of enjoyable. Not at all. I think on reflection there are so many things in childhood that we lose for a while and then suddenly think, Oh no, that was actually really cool. I want to I want yeah. to reconnect with that. What happened for you to disconnect when you were sort of an older teenager and in your early twenties? No, just I mean, to be honest, no, nothing actually that rowdy, to be honest. Mostly just like studying and being a bit, you know, going into like books and trying to get into uni and become a lawyer and all that kind of stuff. Um, but to be honest, I think it wasn't even, it wasn't that much of a going away from it because, you know, I kind of, I started wandering again in my kind of early 20s, going backpacking by myself and heading out into the countryside on bike rides. Um, I got into kind of wild swimming mm. when I was at the last point in my time at uni. Um, so... Yeah, I wasn't that long away from it, actually. <laughs> I've definitely gone more into it since since then, and that, that process continues, I think, kind of feralization. A gradual feralization, I really like that. No, I wasn't trying to kind of subtly dig into any kind of like rowdy stories from university that <laughs> To be honest, the ra- uh, yeah, it's, it's, again, like this, as, a, as a process of feralization, it also be a kind of process of hedonization as well. So I've actually, uh, my, my rowdiest days were not in my teenage years. If anything, they're kind of, you know, much more recent to me than, than, than that. I, uh, I would regard my like, my teenage self now as like a massive, you know, nerd, going to have more fun. <laughs> And and you mentioned wild swimming there, and I know that you are a keen swimmer. How did you find that? And when did you kind of realise this? Well, as I described in my introduction, this sort of affinity for for water. I've always been kind of attracted to water, but the the time I can really pinpoint I started kind of wild swimming with a capital W and S, I guess, um, (laughs) was um, I was... I think it was in my second year at uni and I was in the library revising and I kind of started, I read the times and I just kind of browsed over the obituary page and I saw the name of my college there, Peterhouse. And so I thought, oh, I just started reading this obituary and it was the obituary for Roger Deakin, the mm-hmm. guy who, the man who wrote Waterlog. And um, so he seemed really interesting. So I bought his book on the basis of that and then started reading it and then started just wild swimming in the river cam at uni and then kind of gradually on from there so I don't know if that I mean I probably would have come to wild swimming anyway because I always feel drawn to water but it's kind of interesting to have that 
that kind of connection then kind of explore many of the places that, that Roger writes about in the book. Back to his farm recently and swam in the moat that he writes about as well, which is kind of a almost a form of pilgrimage, I guess. I've also got this like amazing image <laughs> of you kind of devouring this book in the library and then kind of having a eureka moment where you then go and jump in the river <laughs> afterwards. It's not, not far away. It's come over from these like kind of really posh balls in the early hours, like 4am and just like take off my kind of white tie and dinner jacket and go swimming in the can next to a massive flock of geese do you do that in cambridge because in oxford everyone drops uh, jumps off the bridge on may day does that happen yeah but it's, it's not that organized it was just kind of just by myself really just having a little <laughs> having a little swim <laughs> and you did mention the oak tree but i know that you that you do have also kind of fostered through the years a really strong connection with trees did that begin in childhood as well mm. No, not in the same way as water. I don't think. I mean, I, I always kind of liked going around forests and kind of near trees, but I wouldn't say I had the same affinity that I have now. That's definitely grown. I think in my like twenties. Um, I mean, and you know, I, n- none of this stuff really comes from my family or background. Like my family's kind of working class. Doesn't really um, like say like they like football and kind of not particularly interested in nature per se, and definitely not to the extent that I am. Mm. So I'm always a bit perplexed where it came from, really. But sort of has. <laughs> <laughs> now you gained a little bit of notoriety with a particular viral video of you um, defending human rights. Um, can you explain what that was about? Yeah, so I was. This is quite a few years ago, four or five yeah. years ago, I think, and. Um, I was cycling back from court and I saw some sort of pro-Chinese government protesters trying to drown out a a free Tibet rally at the same time as the Chinese president was visiting London. And I quite like arguing with protests I disagree with on the street because I think a lot of people either get kind of angry at them and say you shouldn't be protesting or just ignore them. But I think a lot of the time we should really just dive in more and like just start, you know... um, start arguing with them and arguing back and a lot of the time actually they're not used to it and they don't have any apart from just shouting their own slogan they have actually no real arguments to it mm. like if you I've, I've done it before like with a kind of homophobic christian preacher just come up and just like start like really hassling them about what jesus actually believed and their own beliefs <laughs> which i think is quite often quite effective and so this this one was the easiest it was an open goal because they had literally no arguments whatsoever um so i just sort of said to them you know you're here protesting uh in london which fair enough um do you think someone should have the same right protest uh in tibet or in beijing um and they couldn't really answer it because they don't really have an answer because the answer is no they wouldn't be allowed to <laughs> so it's quite quite <laughs> ironic when you're protesting in favor of a government that doesn't allow protest um so yeah and then that i i did that was just completely off the cuff just having a little thing and i kind of cycled on and as, a, as i was cycling on someone said oh i've just filmed that is okay if i put it on twitter or something i was like yeah sure whatever and then cycled off and didn't think any more of it and then a few hours later someone messaged me going oh my god amazing video i was like what and it turns out the guy who'd filmed it was the social media director of the free tibet campaign um yeah and so then he put it on their main Facebook and Twitter and everything, and it kind of took off, and apparently it was the most shared post they've ever had. Uh, I don't sort of quite understand why. I think it was maybe because I looked quite looked and sounded quite establishment, but 
was kind of making kind of radical arguments. I don't know. I don't know what it was. <laughs> or, or just the kind of like sermon from the bike that happened. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's sort of the, the, the cheeky, unorganized nature of it. <laughs> and just kind of as we're sort you, of... You, you, you definitely done your Google research. That, that, that's that's quite far back in the, in the kind of, in the Google findings now. You've really gone, you've I've, really gone through it. <laughs> I pride myself on my deep dive Google research. Yeah, yeah I can see. <laughs> um, we'll move away from the, the Google deep dives, um, but still sticking on the subject of law, I guess. Um, can you explain um, what giving rights to nature entails and how it would benefit natural features such as rivers? Yeah, I mean, rights of nature is really a kind of broad term to encompass lots of different things. Um, it can mean giving what's called legal personality to nature. So at the moment, a river or a tree can't bring a legal case in its own name. Um, and when you first say this to people, it sounds a bit mad, like how could a tree sue someone or a river sue someone? But we actually already have many non-humans that have legal personality and also humans who can't bring their own cases who have legal personality. So obvious examples are children or those pe people with dementia, for instance. Mm -hmm. So they, they can't bring a case in their own name, but they do have legal personality. And then you know, people, if you like, speak through them. So children have what's called litigation friends um, and the courts apply a test of what's in the best interest of the child. Um, and there's, you know, there's power of attorney for people who can't speak for themselves, but it doesn't mean they lose the right to bring a case, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. The more interesting one is, is non-humans, so charities. So, you know, um, I've set up the River Oding Trust. It has legal personality. It can sue and it can be sued. But actually, it doesn't, doesn't really exist. It's just a thing we've made up. Even more obviously is companies, right? You know, companies aren't actually a thing. It's, it's entirely, it's a legal fiction. Like mm -hmm. Tesco doesn't actually exist. It's a, it's a load of people and property and things that we've like bound up in this idea and then given it legal personality, but it's not actually a thing. Like, who is Tesco? <laughs> you know, and um, when you think of it like that, it becomes much easier to imagine what um, what bringing a case in, you know, what legal personality would look like. Um, and you can totally imagine the river eroding where I live having legal personality. Um, other parts is like self-ownership, so getting nature to own itself other than always being owned by humans. Um, then there's like substantive rights. So, you know, hu humans have legal personality but what actual rights do they have and that's that's always under development it still is you know throughout the 20th century we were constantly expanding what rights humans would have and we had to go through that same process with nature too um and it can also be a kind of spiritual like a idea of nature being sacred again mm -hmm. um and bringing people to notice nature and spend time with it and sort of act as its guardian Mm -hmm. um, I think the overarching thing that I, I'm increasingly coming to is the idea of rights of nature just being a way of bringing nature's voice to the table. Um, at the moment, a lot of the time, nature just isn't heard. And so it's always nature that loses out. When we're debating whether to do something or not do something, we do it usually for the benefit of humans or not. So we don't actually think about the impact that will have on nature. And so rights of if we, if we had um, proper rights of nature and you know, nature with self-ownership and legal personality and all those things, it doesn't mean that nature would always win, in a sense, because 
we we also live on this earth and everything we do impacts nature and we, we couldn't say we're never going to tree down again or we're never going to take water out of a river or put in treated sewage from a, into a river because that's pretty much impossible because we we have to we have to drink we have to use we have we have to use the earth in a way but at the moment there's very little nature is rarely represented in the conversation mm. as a counterbalance to the constant insatiable greed of humans to use to use nature and actually if we had that voice there we'd have i think a lot less gratuitous destruction of nature well, yeah. yeah i mean what i'm hearing is that it's, it's acknowledging that we exist in a kind of co-collaboration with nature and that that can be a negotiation as well as you say nature won't always win that that, that, that we are nature and that we are intimately and completely bound up with nature and the earth we cannot exist without it and that it is in some sense sacred Mm. in the same way that humanity is i believe kind of divine and sacred but nature is too and it needs and is 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 alive in a sense um i think to me the idea of nature as dead as a resource to be extracted and something over which mankind has unlimited dominion is actually the underlying sickness that has caused all the all of the crises that we currently see or at least most of them um you know the climate crisis is a symptom of that as is the soils crisis as is the oceans crisis the overfishing crisis the biodiversity crisis all you know, most of the crises that we see i think are their, their underlying root is that that problem is i think largely a western kind of um enlightenment attitude towards nature um rooted in quite a um, Judeo-Christian idea of man having dominion over nature. The first couple, there's some early chapters of Genesis recently, I was just like absolutely blown away by how awful they are in relation to nature. As you read the words, it's like quite disturbing. And, and you can totally see why we've ended up in this kind of real pickle that we have when um, when nature is, is sort of treated like that. I might... We've got time, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. Please grab, grab out the old, Just grab out the old Bible. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't normally have a Bible sitting there, but I inherited this family Bible from my grandmother. <laughs> died last year, so it's a very precious thing. I know. Um, I have my grandmother's Bible. Where are as well. we? Ah, here we are. So this is Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he him. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. That's like basically one of the first most important parts of the Bible. And that's that attitude is really dangerous, actually. And, and you know, back in medieval times, it wasn't great to have that attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it probably led to a lot of actual quite sadness. Actually, to be disconnected from nature in that way is actually quite, I think, quite tragic. But it wasn't as dangerous. That attitude 
combined with the power that humans were granted via the Industrial Revolution is dangerous, not only to nature, but ultimately to us. We now have a power that is beyond our ability to properly deal, control it. And that power now encompasses that to destroy, destroy ourselves. Not just encompass it, will we'll destroy ourselves unless we change course. I believe can't just be done by treating the symptoms. It needs to go to the underlying cause of that. Because, you know, if you, if you start treating the symptoms without the underlying cause, it's going to make it worse potentially. So, you know, this with be this in like kind of um, green growth and the, the concentration on carbon. So it's like, oh, we just need to get rid of carbon and everything will be fine. So let's just like blast away the mountain guys, like trawl through the seas, just like rip up the earth to make as much, to try and like put an, an energy intense civilization that we currently have, but via renewables. I mean, A, it's not going to work, mm-hmm. but B, um, you're going to end up completely destroying nature and also making even more problems than we probably already currently have. You know, the, the electric car problem, trying to move giant hunks of metal around um, with batteries rather than just, you know, cycling <laughs> or using public transport, you know. And, and we can go through all of those. There's so many. Um, sorry, that was quite a long, quite a long rant. What's going on? But I feel like I kind of got right into the nub of it there, <laughs> like the current problems that we face. No, I think it's really interesting what you bring up. Is it like the idea of dominion versus what I, I want to come on to in terms of your guardianship and also the fact that I mean, this isn't new, giving rights to nature. It it happens across the world and particularly in, in countries where there is a stronger indigenous culture. And do you think it is this kind of incessant sort of drive towards, well, first industrialization and now towards capitalism and consumerism and fixing things, like you said, with more hunks of metal or plastic that are going to go around the reds? Is that what has like led to opposition to doing this in the UK, do you think? I mean, why can't, why can't we be like other nations? Yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty obvious that a lot of the drive towards rights of nature around the world is um, through Indigenous people. I mean, to be honest, they, they never really lost it in a sense. Mm-hmm. What, what rights of nature is doing is just put the, the way that they already believed about the world into a Western framework that kind of Western law and legal tradition can kind of understand. Um, if anything, it doesn't quite work because they don't even really a lot of the time have a concept of dominion or ownership and so trying to say oh nature has self-ownership doesn't even really make sense but Mm -hmm. it's kind of way of trying to put their beliefs into that kind of best and legal system that we've exported around the world as best as possible um and we we know it's legally possible to do it in the uk because um they've done it in new zealand um which is probably one of the most similar legal systems in the world to ours so with the wanganui river um as part of their uh, peace treaty with the Crown, the Maori people demanded that the river, their sacred river, be given um, self-ownership um, and legal rights. And that was done in 2017 via an act of New Zealand Parliament. So we, we know it's very possible to do it, but there's obviously a political um, blockage to it happening in the UK. I mean, to be honest, at the stage we're at, at the moment, we're not even really at the stage of it being blocked. Um because people don't even know about it, people don't even thought about it. You know, it's just a few kind of mad voices in the wilderness basically being like, maybe we should do this. Um, but, you know, I think it got mentioned in the House of Lords for the first time last year by Natalie Bennett. Um, but, you know, we're not even at the stage where existing environment law is being properly enforced. So I think the idea that we're going to head towards 
rights of nature anytime soon is probably unlikely in the UK in, say, a five to ten years timescale. But then that means it's very important for everyone who cares about nature to stand up and to fight for nature as best they can and to step into that role of guardianship without waiting for anyone to come and tell us that that's what we can or should do. Mm-hmm. Do you think that we need, before that can happen in terms of conversations that we have with rights of nature in courts, do we almost need a new legal language? So the law is very conservative. Yeah. And, you know, I push on those boundaries, but like, I haven't yet stood up and said, I'm here to represent a tree because they'd be like, what the fuck? You know, you can't. (laughs) Um, And, but you can, you can kind of play with it. So, you know, like I represent a lot of tree protectors in court and I put their arguments through the prism of current legal language, Mm -hmm. but also let it be known that they're doing, they're doing as a form of guardianship for the tree and that in their campaigning to bring that out. Um, more sense to do things like you know just try and push on the boundaries a little bit so um the the river roading trust might be bringing a private prosecution against thames water for putting sewage in the river and i wonder if we just actually so just bringing the river roading trust just put on the actual form the river roading as the prosecutor brackets by its litigation friend the river roading trust close brackets to see what they do I guess the worst thing they do is strike out and say, no, you can't do that, in which case that's also quite interesting. <laughs> but even even the attempt to do it can kind of change how people perceive it, maybe. Do you find that it's even, like, about the law in quite a lot of the cases that you're confronted with? Or is it more about imbalances of power? Yeah, I mean, it's, the root cause of it is usually an imbalance of power, but that's often how the law manifests. Mm. Um um, and that's largely because, you know, who gets legal advice and who gets good legal advice is dependent on how much money you have, which is also a facet of power. Um, you know, we often see, well, there's, there's different things. I mean, we can look at it on one level of saying, okay, even the humans protecting nature often have a massive imbalance of power. You know, in Sheffield, the tree protectors there were up against city council that, you know, had 10 times as much resources as them, had the entire police force, you know, the manifestations of the state on its side effectively they still won but it was really hard for them but we can go down another level and say well actually at least humans have it some rights you know at least humans you know they can't just come along and kill you but they can just come along and kill a tree a lot of the time with no legal recourse whatsoever you know thames water can't come and actually beat me up largely probably <laughs> but they can beat up the river by just throwing sewage into it you know even Thames, I, I, you know, even Thames Water can come and throw sewage over me, but they do it to the river. And so, you know, when we have nature, because nature's voice isn't at the table, because we don't have legal personality for nature, there's an even bigger imbalance of power. There. And it makes it more important for those who do at least have some power to use that power on behalf of nature. So, you know, Thames, the, the council can't come along and just beat me up. So if I stand underneath a tree... I'm using my power as a human that they can't have some rights that they can't abrogate on behalf of the tree. We, we've seen that throughout history, people doing that. So where someone doesn't have legal rights to themselves, people who do have such rights using them on behalf of them. So the, the men who supported the suffragette movement or the British people who supported slaves and abolitionism. 
they often use their rights as a, as a free white person to what, what rights they have on behalf of the enslaved people, at least those with morals, at least those who, who, were, who, who saw what was right and what was wrong did so. We often see that throughout history. And I believe that's something that's really coming up now around nature. If you will see the way that nature is disenfranchised, see the way that it's used, because it doesn't have, you know, it doesn't have a voice a lot of the time, and then use their rights on behalf of nature. So it's it's essentially like being a being an ally, really, to to nature. Yeah, but in some ways, where, where the, you know, where the the th- the person you're trying to ally with, or thing you're trying to ally with or person that doesn't have their own rights, it's a much more intense duty than, you know, because you're literally putting yourself on the line to protect them a lot of the time. Um, it's a much more intense form of allyship, but I think a really worthwhile one. No, absolutely. And my question was just like to do with um, what happened in Sheffield. And I was just wondering if you could explain that in a little more detail. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a long story. There's a new film out called The Felling, which is oh, nearly okay. two hours long, which deals with all of this. It's a lot. I watched it. There was a London premiere last Friday, and I watched it. It made me really angry, actually. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten how awful the council behaved. <laughs> really, the touch of time kind of made me forget how hard it was for people. Um, in summary, the council in Sheffield entered into a um, street maintenance contract with a private contractor called Amy and um, they it's never quite been understood why but potentially due to some way the contract was structured um, it might have given a financial incentive to remove trees even where they were not causing any harm effectively or even where they were causing some damage to the pavement but that was quite easily repairable Mm -hmm. and so the council then wanted to chop down 17,500 street trees which is about I think more than half of the trees in the city, one of the greenest cities in Europe in terms of numbers of trees. And local people basically rose up against it. And people, quite a small band, probably between 50 and a couple hundred people, um, with some, even a more hardcore part of that, which is the, you know, the people who are there all the time, just said no and started basically standing under the trees. Then they started getting arrested. Um, and I helped stop them get arrested by writing an advice saying what the police was doing was, was unlawful, which it was. Um, and then the council was like, didn't stop them. They then went and basically paid hundreds of thousands of pounds of taxpayers' money to barristers and solicitors to get an injunction, which basically meant that although standing under the tree wasn't criminal, um, it would because it would breach the injunction, you could get put in prison for up to two years for it. Um, yeah. And then it got really like nasty, like to the extent that like they had to basically Harris fence off entire streets and get dozens of private security guards and police officers. And you know, this, some of the stuff was sickening. The seeing like these basically bouncers just like basically grabbing and throwing old women to the floor on the street, like breaking people's fingers off of fences, like real nasty, nasty stuff. Um, but eventually. There was also campaigning going along alongside this and accommodation of that campaigning and basically anarchy that was breaking out on the streets um, of just basically ordinary people who were like, no, you are not taking this tree. And the cost it was then costing to basically employ all these security guards to chop down one tree at a time, basically the council backed down and um, the protesters won. But one thing that was really interesting about the movie was, I'd kind of forgotten this, it was like, you know, the darkest hour is always before the dawn. 
And it was like March 2018 was like the absolute nadir of the campaign. It was like freezing cold. They, the protests were getting arrested, beaten up. Like they were, they put so much force on the street. They were just able to like grab people and just throw them out of the, the fenced area and then chop, chop the tree down. It was like really nasty. And then basically like a month or two later, the council backed down. And yeah, it was really interesting to like compare how I felt back then. I thought, I thought it was probably lost. I was like, I just don't see how they can win this. And then suddenly... And, and now they've completely won. Not only did the council back down, but they then went back and was like, okay, well, what we'll do instead is we'll try and investigate whether we can, in fact, repair the pavement around these trees. And for every single tree that was threatened with removal for damaging the pavement, they actually found a way to repair it. Yeah, things like, oh, we can't fit a curb in here, so they just cut the curb in half, <laughs> put it on. Oh, it works. <laughs> and things like things like they, they, they investigated by like hand, like where there was like cracking of the pavement and these giant like mountains of tarmac, which it looked like the tree had pushed up, but actually what had happened, there'd been small cracks. Instead of repairing it properly, it just kept putting more and more tarmac on top. <laughs> so they'd created these small mounds of tarmac and actually when they took them away, it was actually fine and they could just repair it. And you have a tree and a repaired street, you know. Amazing. So there was actual learning that came out of that. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, there's, there's still shit happening. Still council chopping down trees all the time, even though they're supposed to be the ones protecting them. Another one is um, insurers for houses that have subsidence demanding that nearby trees be chopped down instead of paying for underpinning of the house. There's two, well, there's two trees that's really happening at the moment. I'm in court next week representing some tree protectors in Haringey who the council's trying to get an injunction against for standing under the tree, like Sheffield again. And um, I was, yeah, helping to people like in Lewisham who literally like stood under a tree this week to try and chop it being chopped down. Um, yeah, that's, uh, I think there's, there's, it's called the Senlac Road Plain, if you want interest. And also then there's Haringey Tree Protectors on Twitter. Um, they do really good work. So we've just talk, talked about Sheffield and the trees. What are the real problems with rivers, such as the frame, for instance? Uh, I mean, where'd you start? Um, <laughs> we can go on the journey with this one too. <laughs> um, I mean, the Roging is quite a good example, actually, because it's basically both an urban and a rural river. Um, so it has the problems of both, um, which are significant. So up in the upper catchment, it's like really bad farming practices. Um, I walked the entire river, sort of pilgrimage, 18 months ago during on the Easter weekend uh, from source to sea. And, you know, some of the farmers up there are like ploughing like right up to the river on a slope. So all of the soil washes off into the river as is the pesticides and the fertilizer go straight in the river. Um, and so you can like tell, for instance, when it's been raining heavily up in Essex because the water down here will go like a chocolate brown colour from all of the soil, you know, not, not like we need that soil to grow food or anything. Um, <laughs> causes like and then it silts up down here covers up all the gravel and all the spawning beds down here yeah that's annoying um yeah pesticides fertilizers up there and then as you come down into the urban catchment um there's roads pretty much the last almost half of the river it has a ro major road right next to it like literally right next to it um because river valleys are really convenient places to stick motorways um because they're quite flat and they um don't usually have things built on them. So you don't have to pay any compensation because of course nature doesn't need compensation, just only humans. So if, if you build it outside the river, out people's houses, that's very expensive. But of course, river floodplains, 
great, stick a motorway through it. So they did. So they stuck that parts of the M25 go over it, then the M11, then the A406, um, all the way down along the river. So that is A, quite ugly and annoying because it's really noisy, but also more importantly, all the runoff from the road, which contains chemicals, tyre particles, like random metals, like all of the shit that's on the motorways gets washed straight into the river. There's no treatment of that whatsoever. Just really, and, and we don't even really know how much of it's going in or where. Um, there's that. Then you start getting um, kind of messing around with the banks. Um, so like sheet piling rather than having natural banks um, cutting off from the floodplain. And as you get into the kind of lower reaches, um, like the roading should be surrounded by miles of tidal marsh, which is some of the most, the best habitat in the UK slash the world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really rich habitat. And they just, not, not even that recently, you know, probably from medieval times onwards, embanks the river and then turn that into farmland, um, all those marshes. And then that farmland called levels a lot of the time then got turned into housing in the 19th century so there's basically very little left um like small fragments basically um and then you've got rubbish uh which is massive i mean you had if you saw on twitter recently we did the cleanup it was just yeah. horrific um you know we're producing tides of disposable plastic and aluminium and other you know disposable packaging basically mm-hmm. um and those people who produce it have zero plan for how it's going to get recycled. Um, or they pretend to, but not really. They know huge amounts of it are ending up in the environment and they want to put more in there. And they're basically using, I think, abusing the labour of volunteers who don't want nature or their environment to look like a massive pile of shit. Mm. Um, and... They, so they're, therefore, they're, you know, I, like I feel that like, I don't want my rose to look like this. So I guess I don't have much choice, but I really bloody resent it. You know, <laughs> these people are making money, causing a problem that I'm having to volunteer to sort out on their behalf. Like, absolutely, like, fuck you, Coca-Cola. Like, how dare you do that? You know, they, they know what they're doing and it's very profitable. And no one dares hurt them and say, actually, this is your problem. Like, either have a way of sorting this out once it's up in the environment or stop producing it in the first place. Yeah, I think we see kind of all the pictures of of volunteers doing stuff and think, oh, isn't that great volunteering? But they shouldn't have to do it. That's the point. There shouldn't need to be those pictures of people volunteering. People shouldn't have to give their time to be clearing up what is, as you say, a company shit, basically. <laughs> yeah. And I, I actually went to a conference about it a couple of weeks ago and started being like controversial because the whole, I, I thought, you know, it's about plastics in rivers. And I was like, oh, that's quite interesting. The whole thing is about how can we support volunteer groups to monitor and take this plastic out? And I was like, shouldn't we be maybe trying to stop it going in, you know, radical action towards that? And then I found it halfway through, the guy organising the conference, his position, and indeed this entire project was part funded by the plastics industry. Um, so they're like funding to keep this idea going, look at these lovely volunteers doing a lovely thing. Like, no, they shouldn't have to be doing that. Um, and they're doing it because it's really profitable for the plastics industry to continue on their current business model. And so it's a kind of form of like plastic washing, I guess, like greenwashing mm. for that industry to be, you know, have lots of lovely people like give them some litter pickers and say, I know we've given them a couple of grand to help them pick all this plastic out. Like it shouldn't be going in there. 
And I think we should get more aggy about that, really. Like, I don't see why I shouldn't plastic bags to the Coca-Cola headquarters and dump it in their reception. Like, if it's good enough for my river, is it not good enough for your fancy reception? Mm. And likewise with sewage. I mean, that that shouldn't be a thing. Oh, sorry, I didn't, I didn't even mention the sewage yet, did I? You I didn't know. We, got we haven't got onto the sewage. Should we do the sewage now? <laughs> Let's get uh, on to Thames Water and the sewage. Why aren't they? Why are they being so slow to act with the sewage? I, I guess. Guess. Let's, what's what's Thames Water's primary purpose? To make money for its shareholders. That's its primary purpose. That's what it's there to do. If they, if they can avoid spending some of the money they should be spending on stopping sewage going into the river and give that to its shareholders instead, that's literally what they're programmed to do. Like Their purpose is to make money for their shareholders. So actually, of course, they're putting shit in rivers because it's profitable to do that. And their purpose is to make profit for their shareholders. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is literally what they're there to do. It's like we all kind of avoid it. It's like no, that and and I see the sharp end of that. And I'll tell a brief story now. Um, so eighteen months ago, I was doing a litter pick day on the Aldersbrook, taking the plastic out for the plastic industry. And, um, <laughs> well done. And they're really grateful. <laughs> so yeah, right. they didn't even say thanks. Um, and I smelled really like shit everywhere. There was like shit all over the all over the brook. And I came to this outfit. I didn't know it was there. Just like spewing like tens of thousands of liters a day of like raw sewage, not like sort of grey water, like actual turds into the river. And it'd been doing it for ages because like, it had gone like all over the area. Like it'd been happening for a while. And Thames just hadn't even realised. Called it in. They turned. They they stopped it happening. And um, then it kept happening again. It's happened about three or four times over the last eighteen months. And Thames Water have admitted there's basically an engineering problem with the sewers there. It's quite boring to go into, but basically whenever the sewers block there, it just goes into the river and they know it's a problem and it needs an engineering solution. And it was like, I was in some meetings, you know, bearing in mind I'm the only one who's not getting paid to be in these meetings. I mean, people are on a lot of bloody money and I'm the only one that's giving up my free time to be in them. And I'm like, so I understand this is complicated to fix, but in the meantime, can you just like check the outfit once a week to make sure it's not... You're not committing. And by the way, this is not this is not legal. It's a serious criminal offence each time it happens. Serious criminal offence. Can you just like check the outfall just to make sure you're not committing a serious criminal offence? They're like, no, it's really hard for us to do that. And I'm like, I can do it. I literally go down there with my clippers, clip through the bramble so I can check it. So you can go and check it. So I don't have to keep doing it in my spare time for free. And they were like, no. And I was like, use a drone. No. Set up a camera. No. Just can't. There's a lot of effort to not commit criminal offences. So we're not going to do it because no one's going to make us. It's basically their attitude. And then I had a meeting with them yesterday, and like, they, you know, they, they have now found an engineering solution, but it, it's really expensive. So it's going to take a bit of time to do it. And even then, it won't properly fix it because the one that would actually fix it is super expensive, and they just can't afford it in this current round of investment. And I'm like, but what about your shareholder dividends? Like, you probably shouldn't be giving any dividends while this problem is happening. Because it's, it's kind of a bit like the proceeds of crime, really, isn't it? Mm. Because they're literally paid to sweep the sewage. They're not doing it. They're not, and, and they've identified a problem that they could fix, but they're just like, oh, it's quite expensive, so we'd actually just rather not, and we'll just keep taking loads of money and committing criminal offence because it's actually much more profitable to commit the criminal offence because the environment agency probably won't take action. And even if they did, the fines are going to be less than what it would cost us to fix it. So fuck it. <laughs> we'll just we'll, we'll just act like a criminal gang and just keep committing a criminal offence, and they do, and they have, and no one cares. Just thinking how power works in this country. If I took five liters of that water in a bottle 
and threw it over the front desk of Thames Waterhead HQ, I would be in the cells pretty bloody fast. But they can put 10,000, 100,000 times that amount into a river in London, right next to an Ilford Town Centre. And like, where's, where's the police? Where's the environment agency? It's how power works. And this country is having an increasing problem with the rich and powerful just literally not obeying the law. Like the law is increasingly for little people. They'll probably get maybe a 50 to 100 grand vine. Chicken feed. You know, they make, their turnover is billions. I mean, it's, it's a real object lesson. There's, I think I saw recently there's only like one or two countries in the world that have a privatised water industry and for good bloody reason. It's because it's a monopoly and the way, the way you're obviously going to make money is in cutting corners, which is going to impact things like water quality in rivers mm. and, and the service that people get. That's what's going to happen. I mean, it's, it's almost like, a, it's like an equation, isn't it? It's like, you know, it's the, your purpose is to make money an obvious way you can make money is by cutting corners environmentally and not investing in anything that you should be or very little that you should be. And who's going to suffer from that? Ordinary people in the environment. It's just, it's literally baked into the actual process. And I mean, I guess the argument would be that it's not supposed to be that because we're supposed to have a regulator that stops that, which mm-hmm. is off what, but they're like seemingly terminally useless. It puts me in mind of those like early Simpsons, um, episodes you know like with Mr Burns and the radioactive shit going into the river basically and that was meant (laughs) that was meant to be like us all laughing at it and being like well the world isn't like that really is it but it's (laughs) um it is um just to just to move on slightly from Thames Water and just talk about well in conjunction with it but you have developed the role of a nature guardian um, and created the River Roading Trust. Uh, so what does that entail? Um, it's a good question. I'm kind of working it out, really. Um, it involves me living on the river and doing whatever I'm able to to protect it, speak for it, act for it in any way I can. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples to move away from. I mean, sewage is an obvious one, you know, like we cut apart there's a basically an area of the river which has no public access at the moment we're trying to get it opened up to public mm-hmm. access we've cut a path through and i just occasionally i like walk that so i walked it today and there was another another sewage other than the oldest one smaller but still there which again no one would know so just like spending and someone dumped a load of fly tipping there alongside the river no no one cares or knows and a house on the other side of the bank had like thrown loads of stuff over its fence into the river so I'll be going around to those people and saying, hello, please remove that or I will contact the council and report you. Mm-hmm. And you know, just need someone to do that, basically. But you know, there are some state agencies doing this stuff, but it's, they're mostly like, they're underfunded, they're giving up, and they also don't have the overall role of the, uh, the, the river at its heart. And I find that for a river, particularly in you know, nature guardianship, sort of touches on so many different areas you know sometimes it's sewage sometimes it's like cleaning up rubbish and fly tipping sometimes it's like planning wildlife there's like random homeless guys around here that set up encampment just going and speaking to them being like hey totally fine for you to camp here i mean well not it well i'm I'm not gonna disagree with you you know you're homeless you need somewhere to stay Mm -hmm. that's not my business but please just don't leave it as a massive rubbish tip like other people have in the past and when i go past and find it has been treated like that say excuse me please tidy this up, that kind of stuff. So on some nicer ones, things like um, I was 
cycling on the river in like Barking Town Centre one day and I noticed these like really cool birds that I'd never seen before and I was like what are these guys and I sort of researched it a bit and found out they were sand martins Mm. um and they fly all the way over from like Africa um and usually nest in sandy cliffs um but there are no sandy cliffs in Barking so they basically like you know they found some like storm drain holes in it or like land drainage holes in, in a concrete wall and just nested in there instead. Like literally in like the worst place you can imagine, like next to a Wicks car park, opposite a shell garage, giant Tesco on the side of the road, building site with pile driving, main road, like pretty grim, like no greenery, really grim. And uh, yeah, they're just, they're just doing their thing, like flying around, catching <laughs> bugs. Let's go and then from like March, April till September, just go and watch them like, dozens of them just like flying in the air really beautiful and then we found out that um the riverside owner there wanted to, to redo the banks and mm. um, to, to redo the sheet piling and, and the concrete and um you know that, that, that's fine but had they not had we not told them they would never have known the san martins were nesting there probably just they come in the winter we just like got rid of the colony and the colony would be fucked um so we were able to say, totally fine for you to redo these banks, but can you do it outside of nesting season? So only from October to March. And when you do it, please replace all of the holes, ideally with a few more, so the colony can come and re-nest there. And that's just like a really nice example of like how speaking for nature can make a difference. And didn't, it didn't really impinge upon humans. Like they still got to, you know, they can still rebuild their, rebuild their wall, they can still do their works, but it's just by doing it in a way that then nature can still exist. And had they not done that, probably have we not said that the colony will probably be you know destroyed um and like you know next to that site on the big tesco site there's a developer that wanted to chop down all the trees on the riverside and build flats and we were like totally fine to build the flats can you just please leave the trees Mm. (laughs) they were like no absolutely not trees need to go and then we negotiated with them quite hard again me and the trust ecologist being the only people in the meetings not being paid to be there um but said, okay, if you want to take these trees, can you not replace them? And eventually we, we negotiated them down. And although the trees have to go, still, annoyingly, mm-hmm. um, they're going to replace them with like dozens of like birch trees, mature birch trees along the river, um, and also install wildlife rafts along the entire what's current steel sheet piling. So mm-hmm. there'll be like loads of habitat there. And again, they just wouldn't, would not have done that had we not fought, fought for it. They would have just done the cheapest, easiest thing. And you can see that on the other side of the river, the same developer did a development a couple of years ago, which is A, looks like a piece of shit, and B, is awful for nature. It's like a couple of like, you know, those awful spindly dying saplings they put up mm-hmm. and sheet piles, no attempt to, to green the edge of the river at all. And that that's what they would do if they can get away with it. But if someone comes along and says, hey, I'm actually here to talk for the river and what the river wants, it doesn't mean you get everything, but at least the river usually gets something more than it otherwise would, you know? Which benefits everybody. It will probably benefit the developer because yeah. those flats on the side of the river look really sad. Like, like it's this horrible, like, concrete wasteland, just, like, wind-blasted, loads of rubbish all over it already. No one wants to spend time there. It's awful. This will actually look much nicer. It will probably actually, I imagine, might even make the developer money because people would rather live in those flats and actually, like, you know... It doesn't actually cost that much to, to do that kind of stuff, but actually will probably you know, make it much more saleable. Like, sure, build, but like do it in a way that is beautiful and respects nature. And you can have both. But developers often won't do that, rarely do that, unless there's like groups being like, you know, forcing them to.
And as you said, it is a kind of guardianship sort of is sort of like a kind of mindfulness in a way as well, because it's paying attention and noticing these things that need to then be brought to the forefront of people's minds. And I was just thinking about kind of um, in terms of sort of citizen reporting on things, do you think that um, there could be more with kind of people who are doing wild swimming and stuff actually having teaching people how to kind of recognize various things like for example stuff like with invasive species and things as well um yeah de- definitely oh i think that she mentioned the invasive species part when you asked about the problems <laughs> with the roading over that's also a massive problem yeah but yeah definitely and like and i'm going to do a walk on the roading in the spring and actually again but this time mapping it in as much detail mm. as possible which would then be a publicly available map but anyone could do that you know, if you'd have like a collaborative map and just if you swim on certain parts like a lot of a lot of time we don't even know where the outfalls are, where the invasive species are, where the rubbish is. No one even knows. So that knowledge is, is, is really useful. And then, yeah, putting yourself into a guy's in whatever, you know, you don't have to take the whole river, just take a small stretch and just kind of like look after it. Be, be its eyes and ears, be its voice um, through the existing legal system even. It's definitely better than not, you know? Mm. Um, I'm actually thinking of starting a little swimming club on the roading next year. There's, I think, more people on the river using it and enjoying it and monitoring is a good thing and we can actually use that to monitor water quality and potentially get a bathing water status which would help the river almost a bit i'm trying to give it the right analogy here but so maybe like a bit like parenthood in the sense that <laughs> you know you know people often say like the, the individual tasks are really hard and day to day it's often like why would i why would anybody put themselves through that but like it's also the most People say it's the most joyful thing they've ever done, right? Mm. Like, um, and it kind of feels a bit like that. Like, it's, it's, it springs from a deep love and joy, and it's, it's such a pleasure to be in service to nature and a river that I really love. Day to day, it's hard, yeah. You know, clearing up another flight of things, seeing another series is hard, but like overall, there's a deep joy to it. It's, it's not, I, I, I'm not some kind of martyr that's doing this in a kind of sacrificial way. It, it brings a lot of joy to my life mm-hmm. and I it, I would yeah my, my life would be less rich if I didn't do it I can connect with that I'm a teacher so it's a yeah sometimes feels like pulling teeth but <laughs> the outcome and day to day you there's only like you know small small progress but then you look back and think like wow that's really incredible um I think there's, there's almost a bit of an inverse relationship sometimes between how hard things are day to day and how much they bring to your life in a long-term way I feel like maybe teaching parenthood and nature guardianship yeah. are examples of that you know day to day it's hard but actually the long-term thing is actually really beautiful no absolutely I think that's that's a wonderful analogy and I know that you touched on just that the um the idea of access and I did just want to come on to because you're involved with um right to roam and obviously uh, you know that's a big thing um at the moment it's like a whole um, other podcast in itself but um yeah can we do take two yeah, I mean, <laughs> when 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 the you know when the norms expropriated the people who were here before them they also expropriated nature and their descendants still continue to expropriate against the rest of us or to hold land against the rest of us and to do it against nature a lot of the time um and there's definitely a current of thought against right to roam that says you know well we don't want people out in nature because they'll damage it but to me, the greatest damage is often happening where there is no access, you know, where people don't know what's going on and can't see it. Um, 
you know, I had to trespass a day to find out, I had to trespass to find out that sewage was happening, you know, for instance, on the autobook that no one would ever have known. Um, and it feels important to get people out in nature to act as guardians, but also to then transform their relationship to nature. The, the idea, you know, there's this idea that, oh, we need to get people respecting nature more. Well, how can they respect it if they don't actually ever get to experience it? You know, how will people ever take nature into account if, they're, if they don't really get to know it and their life is just a constant merry-go-round of hyper-consumerism with no interaction with the natural world? Why or how would they ever begin to respect nature and to, to look after it? Mm. I don't think that's really possible. And so to me, giving people responsible but greater access to nature, especially near to where they are, is a key part of the societal, societal transformation that we need. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a cheesy but I think often quite true phrase that I use, which is... Um, you will love that which you know and you will protect that which you love. And, yeah, those stages seem very linked to me. How, how can you love something that which you don't know? If you don't know it, you can't. It's too abstract. And how can you... What? Why would you protect something you don't love? What is no, you know, other than potential risk of punishment, but we know that's not going to happen with nature. So... Yeah, we need to start at the very beginning and give people access. And at the very beginning, that might actually be difficult because, you know, people are so unconnected to nature. You see this, there is definitely a problem with littering, but I can't see any way to change that that's not education and deeper connection with nature. It's, it's a bit unusual because it's the only place that you can wild camp uh, legally and a landowner is challenging that. I mean, of course, but it doesn't surprise a lot of the time. You know, their interests are to exclude... Uh, other people from their land and to have as much dominion over nature as they possibly want a lot of the time. Um, and so they push on it. We ought to see whether the courts will actually protect our collective rights to be on the land. And it'd be very tragic, I think, to... Yeah, I mean, to us, I actually didn't even know that it was the only place you could legally wild camp. I just wild camp everywhere, you know? <laughs> <laughs> We said about knowledge. Now this is it. <laughs> it suddenly made me like, maybe realize it was like, oh yeah. wow. So actually, if you if you actually obey the law, that you can only go and camp on a normal campsite. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I I, I didn't realize that recently. I was like, oh wow. <laughs> Good job. I don't believe in um, in uh, landholders' rights to exclude the land. And, and, and there's a good example, right? You know, I, I've been wild camping unlawfully, apparently, for you know a decade, but no one's ever stopped me because I'm, and I've never done any damage. They didn't probably know I'm there. You know, go 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 in in the evening, put your tent up, take it away in the morning, take everything away with you. They wouldn't even know you're there. And just a few last questions. As I said, we could go into into a lot of things with that. Um, maybe we will one day do another another version, but. Um, what does the river and nature give you every day and season to season that makes you keep fighting? Mm, I don't mean how to put that into words, really. Um, which I'm hopefully writing a book about, so I should probably learn how to put it into words. <laughs> <laughs> 
Have you thought this one through? Um, sorry? Have you thought this one through? Yeah, I know, right? I know. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just feel very privileged to be able to live in what's kind of wild nature, but in the city. And the kind of contrasts of it almost are often quite difficult. You know, I live sandwiched between a, a massive concrete estate and warehouses in the North Circular. But on the other hand, you know, I get kingfishers and swans and like constant wild nature here, which feels a massive privilege. Um, and to be able to have both those worlds of the city and nature is, is amazing. Um, brings me a sense of peace and calm. Yeah, a sense of love. But I, I don't know, maybe it sounds too cheesy, but yeah. You're gonna, you're gonna make me cry. I think <laughs> that one. <laughs> it's gonna be a good book. <laughs> um, um, so the, main, the main way I'm thinking of writing this book is just basically take any podcast or anything I do because I, 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 it comes out a lot better when I'm speaking. So I'm gonna like, just take the podcast and just transcribe them and turn them into something. That's what I'm gonna do. So I'm gonna do that with this one. To be honest, I've come up with a number of different ways of putting things and concepts that I hadn't even thought of before this podcast. So, you know. I'm so glad just giving fodder to it. <laughs> um, do you have any rec- other recommended books? And organizations apart from your hypothetical one which will come in the future for people to direct people to um there's a there, there's a few books about rights of nature so there's uh, rights of nature by david boyd but that's a kind of view of it around the world just an interesting introduction to it um there's some books by the right to roam campaigns so is like guy shrubsoul's uh, lost rainforest of england and nick hayes's book of trespass um there's also trespass companion which i think i'm quoted in as well um but yeah there isn't actually any book as far as i know directly related to rights of nature and guardianship in the uk hence my desire to potentially do that um so uh, yeah and um my mind, I mean, in terms of our organisation, we're on Friends of the River Roading on Facebook and um, at River Roading on Twitter. If you ever fancy, we put our um, work days out on there. So if you ever fancy coming and helping out the plastics industry um, by taking their crap out of our river, uh, then you're very welcome. Um, if you live in London and want to come and join in. I mean, it is actually quite fun. I think mm-hmm. this is hard, but it's kind of enjoyable. Zero percent of satisfaction at the end of the day, so... I mean, personally, I'd um, love—I'd love to come and help Pokecoater out sometime. That would be great. <laughs> and also, if, if anyone has a boat and wants to move to the roading and potentially become a river guardian, then we're kind of looking for new people at the moment. So, oh, that's yeah. a good thing. That's a good thing um, to know. I think our email is river.roading at gmail.com. So drop us an email if you'd like to potentially come and live here and get in on the river guardian action. <laughs> awesome. Am I right that you have a riverside sauna and barbecue as well? Is that a thing? Yes, just, and firebar. Just, just going to sweeten the deal for anyone. Yeah, well, the sauna's currently out of action because someone nicked the stove, which is all very, very on brand for barking, it feels sometimes. But um, no, the, the, the fire bath is still operational. So. <laughs> all good amenities. And my final question is uh, which might relate to what you were saying before, but what does joy mean to you? What does joy mean? Yeah, it's it's quite a difficult one to finish with. Yeah, it was a really tough one. I, I mean, I, Save the best for last. Real curveball for the end. <laughs> I don't know what it means, but it often arises from deep connection, doesn't it? To to nature, to your friends, to other humans, to a moment. Um, yeah. 
That's where I feel the deepest wellsprings of joy. Thank you. Yeah. And I think that's a really, that's a really beautiful note to actually end this on, because I think from everything that we've said, connection is really kind of the, the key word to, to take from this um, and, and people connecting to each other and connecting to, to the world around them. So we can all, all move forwards with with love <laughs> ultimately and I, I'd like to express so much gratitude to you Paul for such an insightful conversation that I really hope um, spreads and connects with with lots of people because I think it's it's a message that really needs to be heard and you know I'm looking forward to it being in print as well <laughs> in the future do a few more podcasts and transcribe them first yeah (laughs) thank you so much um and and speak soon thanks paul (laughs) i'm so grateful to the community that is growing around the podcast and if you've enjoyed today's episode i would so appreciate if you can share it with your communities and help spread the message of support perseverance and joy further if you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests you can find me on instagram at running underscore on underscore joy i'd love to hear from you thanks for listening and i'll see you next time for running on joy